how do you deal with a bully without becoming a thug? It's a question for which my guest today, Dr. Silla Elworthy, might just have an answer. A three times nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize and a TED Talk with some one and a half million views, Silla's is the story of an incredible activist working on an inspiring business plan for peace and the skills we need to transform conflict. Because war doesn't pay, it doesn't make us safe, and if we want security, it's going to need collaboration. To tell us more, Silla, welcome to Changemakers. I loved your TED Talk. And tell us a bit more about how you deal with a bully without becoming a thug. It's a pleasure to talk to your audience. I love the idea of active change makers. And one of the things that people often run into when they're trying to transform conflict is that they're up against people who are quite violent, whether verbally violent or physically violent. What we found is that it's absolutely no use to try and argue or even... Um, put up a show of force with anybody who is in a very aggressive mood. So the most successful ways that we can use the opportunity, I would call it an opportunity when we're up against somebody who is bullying us, is first of all, to breathe, because the secret to all effective conflict prevention or transformation is how much we breathe. Why? Because if we breathe deeply and even close our eyes while we're doing it, it helps us to move from the brain, which is fluttering around and having good ideas, to the heart, which has the wisdom, of course. Mm. And all our learned good sense from all our experiences through life resides in the heart and the, and the gut, in the belly. So the more we can move down from the buzzing brain to the calm, big, expanding heart, the better we will manage a bully. And very often, the key thing, it may sound quite mild, but it's not, it's extremely powerful, is to listen. Mm. For somebody who is enraged or full of fury or jealousy or any kind of aggressive moves they want to talk they want to tell you what's wrong with you they want to tell you why they're right they want to tell you what lessons you need to learn all those things so i find that the best way is to say to them okay great but let's turn this into a conversation let's say that you talk for five minutes and i will listen to you so closely that when you finish talking i will then feed back to you what i've heard and what I've learned from you. Mm. And we'll swap over. Would you be willing to do that? Well, so, I mean, I feel immediately calmer just listening to that. But the thing I'm, I'm sort of thinking about is it feels very true on, on a personal level. And I suppose the question is how far this goes in terms of issues like nation states where you're working on things like conflict resolution and where you hear quite often the voices of implacable foes full of anger, full of rage with each other. Yeah. In terms of how you create the common ground, it, it feels to me that this is the kind of the, the number one issue facing the world in so many regions in let terms me, of how you create that kind of common let me, accord. Let me give you an actual example, a real true story. When we were working on nuclear weapons policy making in the Oxford Research Group during the Cold War and right up through the 1990s, we had an exchange of delegations with China and China eventually saw that we were bringing to China very, very senior military people and intelligence people and nuclear planners 
And they brought delegations back to this country, to the UK, at the same level. So on one occasion, there was a private conference going on and we had one public session and that was in St. Anthony's College in Oxford. And there was an auditorium of maybe 200 people and I was on the platform with the Chinese on one side and the British on the other side at very senior levels. And at one point it got quite heated and I thought, hmm, this isn't going to go very far like this. So I said, I just took a deep breath and I said, gentlemen, what you're saying is really power packed and it's very, very powerful and interesting, but we need time to absorb it. Mm. So right now, we're going to have three minutes silence in the whole auditorium, and we're going to have time to digest what you've said. And we'll begin that silence now. The whole room, the whole auditorium grew silent for three minutes. And after three minutes, I turned to one of the Chinese on my left and said, hmm, tell me, tell me how you feel now. What have you learned? And the tone of voice that he used was totally different the way he spoke was totally different. And this had the equivalent effect on his British opposite number. Mm. So that willingness to calm the whole situation by saying we're all going to stop and digest can often work wonders. I've seen it work time and again in very contentious private meetings. Mm. I mean, you, you strike me, Silla, as, as, as a very positive person that believes that progress is possible. I certainly felt watching that that original TED talk from 2012 that here was somebody that that believed that things were getting better. Yet here we are sort of 9 years later and you know we're 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 speaking a a day after a you know a, a sort of president of, of of a country has just brought a commercial jetliner uh, um it forced it to forcibly land in in his country that actually it does feel that there is an element of might is right abroad at the moment in the world in terms of is this a good time to be a peacemaker i guess is is the question well i think in many ways you're right that our current group or collection of leaders are still very embedded in 20th century thinking, which is might is right and so forth. But something completely different is happening at the grassroots. Through Peace Direct, the organization I set up in 2003, we now work with, I think it's 1800 locally led peace initiatives all over the world where people are stopping other people killing each other. And this requires incredible courage. And it's happening, for example, in Pakistan, with young people going into the madrasas, finding out who's being trained for jihad, for suicide bombing, going home with those youngsters to their families, discussing with the families why the Quran would not agree with suicide bombing. And they have so far dissuaded over 1,200 suicide bombers from carrying out their mission. Mm. Now, if that's not saving lives and... <clears throat> building I don't know what is and people don't know about that so we get very obsessed with what the news does with something like what you just named that um, civil airliner being brought down by a fighter jet but we don't learn or we haven't let yet learned about what's coming up from the grassroots which is a I think now I measure it a really a tidal wave of ground-based wisdom. Mm. And when you look at that that ground-based wisdom, I suppose 
what drives it and what stops it in your in your view i think what drives it is um people are very very tired of being bullied in one way or another whether it's by big corporations taking their land or their forests or whether it's strongmen arming militias and driving them out of their homes and so on and so they've they're seeking ways to not just to outwit but to outmaneuver the use of force and the ways they're finding to do that are extraordinary and require great courage there's no doubt about it some people lose their lives doing it what peace direct has done is enable these groups to link up with one another so they're not just isolated people in chad or the congo or libya or all these hot spots they're actually training each other they're getting together with each other forming networks and this makes them feel a good deal stronger mm. it strikes you though when you look at the kind of historical experience that many of these things are cyclical they're about power and they're about disenfranchisement they're about how we behave with each other whether we get technology that allows us to do great good or to create fake news that you can still bring this back to a number of recurring themes in terms of the way people behave with each other. What, 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 what have you learned about that, Scylla, in your, in your experience in terms of where we can make the most progress together, I guess? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I'll give you an example. You've heard about the Chinese um, oppression of the Uyghur minority in northwest China and how nations have kind of condemned this and so forth. Well, it so happens that a very big international company, a retail company that has, I think, 450 branches in China, has been condemned by the Chinese for standing up against this treatment of this minority. Well, what they're doing now is opening a dialogue. And they said, first of all, well, nobody in, in the Chinese hierarchy wants to talk to us. And we suggested, well, hang on a minute. Who do you know that you did used to talk to? And what they're doing now is using statements by impeccable sources like Confucius, who spoke out about dialogue being a great way forward, using that quote, and opening a dialogue with some of the regional Chinese government managers. So Mm. it's being used at that kind of level. But I suppose a lot of people would say, is that enough fairly? And they're good examples, but still, and all the, you know, the the Ouija still continue to be oppressed that you can see oppression in in so many theatres. So I suppose the question is, is it getting better? And does a major global moment like COVID make that more or less likely given the shared experience of of a great challenge? Well, two things, both very good questions. Thank you. The answer to the first one is go and look at the Global Peace Index. That's an index developed by Steve Kililea from his Institute for Economics and Peace. He's coming over to talk to us on Friday, actually. What they've done with their team is to measure the peaceability of, you're probably familiar with it, but Mm -hmm. he's measured the peaceability of the world and what are the trends going on at the moment. And it's absolutely fascinating. Every year he schedules which is the most peaceful country in the world, how did they get there, and which is the least peaceful, and how did they get there. On the second issue, what was the second Well, the second issue was how has has COVID soothed or antagonised that? Oh, Well, I think what what happened under the first lockdowns 
was that people were in shock. They found being uh, on their own very difficult. People craved normal routines. They were dislocated by the lack of the ability to go to a restaurant or a coffee bar or a pub and really were in tremendous resistance. What I think has happened, and I don't know who's measuring it, but I'm sure they are, is that as people began to get accustomed to the fact that they needed to put up with their own company, they started looking at how to do that. And there's been a huge increase in not only fitness and gardening and all those sort of things, but also in people self-inspecting, mm -hmm. people beginning to meditate, people beginning to learn um, self-reflection practices. And that comes up all the time if we're talking about people in the West. I haven't got my finger on how that's happening. Well, I mean, I suppose the thing is, it's, it's an impossible question to speak as a, as a global community. But I suppose that there are, you know, th this is the first time that our generation has gone through such a, a common experience. And I suppose where it takes you to is two two schools of thought what one school of thought being that something so important has happened that it's going to allow the world to move on in a substantial way so klaus schwab the world economic forum um uh, chief executive was about the reset the global reset and there are others which say you know anybody that tells you it's going to be different this time is not telling you a straight truth Silla. and i suppose i've got suspicions about how you you might might see it but i suppose this question about has something new opened up that 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 going through an undoubtedly important event of historical significance what has that opened up mm, yeah well i wish I've, I've just been too busy developing this mighty heart course that we teach now to actually do the measurement and i don't know really who has done viable measurement on this but my sense is that the overall effect of this has been that less people want to go back to normal because looking back normal doesn't make that much sense very few people want to travel as much as they did because they found out that they can have their meetings without having to go through an airport and sit on a plane for hours. And secondly, a lot more people are thinking about how they deal with their refuse because they're actually having to deal with it themselves. Mm. And so it's brought home a lot of environmental concerns that people didn't pay any attention to. Now, whether that affects whether we can actually follow the great research that's being done on how this could let us make the leap of consciousness into a different type of human being that remains to be seen yeah. but there are I, I, fabulous ideas out there I, th I think that that is that is the question isn't there and, and, and also i'm wondering what it means for the future of things like conflict i mean you know you, your 2017 book the business plan for peace spoke about you know peace needed to be made more profitable and i'm wondering whether this accelerates that that imperative in terms of um things like access to vaccines and and to to, to common standards in health i think you put your finger on it the great thing that's happened and is now in the news every day is the COVAX system. More and more leaders are speaking out for why the rich nations like us, who have vaccinated most of the vulnerable population, should be giving, sharing our vaccines with nations like India, which are in a real, real serious situation. And so how could there 
develop a global ethic that it is there's a certain point beyond which you don't go on vaccinating your own population and you share your vaccines. And I believe that's leading to a much greater potential to develop and pool surplus vaccine mm. and rather than just trading in it and trying to make money out of it, which is perceived as very crude now. Now, I want to get into a time machine because I want to take us from 2021. I want to take us back to the Cold War uh, mm. in terms of where this all started for you, because I understand that this was seeing on TV the tanks rolling in to Bud- Budapest in the 50s in terms of the, the actual, th- that experience of seeing conflict for the first time. Mm. Pick, pick up the story for us. Uh-huh. Well, uh, it was 1956. I was sitting in front of a grainy old black and white TV in my parents' living room. I was 13. And I saw these tanks mowing down kids not much older than me who were going like that in front of the tanks and getting mashed. And I was so shocked, I rushed upstairs and started packing my suitcase. And my mum came up and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to Budapest. I had no idea where Budapest was. And she said, what for? What, what, what on earth is going on? And I said, there's something so horrible happening there. I have to go now. And she said, don't be so silly. And I burst into tears. And she got it. In that moment, mm. she got it. She said, OK, I understand. It's serious. But you're much too young to be any use to anybody until you're trained. And if you will just unpack your suitcase, I'll see to it that you get trained. And she did. She sent me off when I was three years older, when I was 16, to work in a holiday home for concentration camp survivors. And I sat on on the grass all summer peeling potatoes and listening to their stories. And it went, and I think I'm a lucky person because I had no choice about what I did with my life there was no, that was it. it it was just caught it was a calling it, yeah I suppose it was I didn't think it was at the time because I didn't know what a calling was because I wasn't religious but it was perfectly clear to me that I could not bear the suffering brought about by war so I had to do something mm. about it it's funny because I interviewed Alf Dubbs, Lord Dubbs, who was one of the kinder transport survivors. He said, look, circumstances made me. You know, in a way, he said the same thing. It was that his experience meant that for him, his life was going to be about refugees. And I, I suppose in terms of what gave you your agency, Silla, in terms of seeing these very visible signs of oppression, tanks rolling down streets. I'd love to understand more about that that feeling inside when you saw that TV screen for the first time. What was going on in terms of how you really felt about that? Because quite often when you hear these stories, you jump to what happened next rather than how did you feel in the moment? i tell you what happened. It broke my heart. That suffering broke my heart. And now when kids come to me and say, this world's really up to maggots. What world have you brought us into? It's unwinnable. It's horrible. What can I possibly do? This is a 17-year-old. So I asked them three questions. I say, first of all, what breaks your heart? Because mm. that's where the power is. So it might be wounded animals. It might be Syrian refugees. It might be butterflies, whatever it is. What breaks your heart? And they tell me. And I say, okay, what, is, what are your skills? What do you do really well? Are you a good artist? Are you a musician? Are you, do you like crowdfunding? Do you like gathering a group around you to do things? And they tell me and I say, okay, third question. Can you marry your skill to what breaks your heart? Because that's where you'll find your passion and possibly even your, 
your um, career in life because when we're driven by something we really care about, as you Im implied just now, that, dis well, it's not despair, it's anger mixed mm. with a broken heart. And that propels us. As long as we keep it like keeping fuel in our carburetor, we don't sort of keep spraying it out on people. We just get driven by it. Then we have the inner power to do almost anything. But I read an important distinction for you was anger with situations rather than with individuals. Exactly. When, when we're angry with people and we throw it at them, it's like spraying gasoline on something and chucking in a match because it's an inferno and people get badly hurt for life sometimes. Whereas if we can keep the gasoline in our personal carburetor, in our engine, that anger enables us to get up tomorrow and do the same thing again, or to keep going, or to, it's, it's a fuel. Anger mm. is a fuel. Probably you. And, and it seems to be that is another form of pandemic around the world, that, that wherever you turn, there seems to be huge issues that, that are essentially defined by just the sheer undiluted rage and anger of people with each other. When you hear that type of dialogue, it does often feel unsurmountable in terms of actually what, what, what do you do with it? And I suppose, does that then come full circle? Is that the point in time where you've just got to get people to breathe? Breathe and, and listen. I mean, honestly and truly, where, where we started this conversation, but if, for example, you were enraged with me and I were to say to you, and I felt, you know, pretty vulnerable with your lightning blast coming at me, and I could say to you, would you be willing, that's the four magic words, would you be willing to spend half an hour with me? We'll sit down, you'll talk for five minutes about how you feel about this issue. I will listen to you carefully, so carefully that I can feed back to you what you said, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. And then I will speak for five minutes about what I feel, and mm. you will listen to me and then feed back to me what you've heard. And I guarantee you that what happens is we move from the brain that says, I'm right and he's wrong, to the heart that says, oh, my God, is that how he feels? Because mm. I get the feelings and the then feelings. the bridge. And I also wonder, is, is there something that in the world we, we just jump to answers before we even know what the questions are in, in, in the sense that people seem to have got these fully entrenched positions? So whether they are you know, near neighbours that you might, you know, have a conversation with or things you might see on the internet or indeed nations speaking unto nations is that everybody seems to have turned up in a digital world with an answer that seems to be very, very incapable of moving forward. It feels that voices that seem to have a reasonable position in that world seem to be the minority, not the majority. If, if you believe the the things that you you know that you see on 24/7 media and things like that and i'm just thinking about all of the parts of the world that at the moment feel like a tinderbox of conflict so i know my mind keeps going to taiwan and china or or hong kong or Myanmar. go to the go to the or Myanmar or go to the states and and see and see two americas or move to you know south america that actually where wherever you choose to sort of particularly put put your pinpoint is that 
it doesn't feel like the world has found a great deal of happiness right now in its ability to get on with each other. Yeah, well, I, there's two reasons for that. One is if it bleeds, it leads. You know, that's what the, the media sells on the basis of fear and getting people upset or frightened or angry. That's the way our media works at the moment, which is a great pity, but it's not, you know, it's not terminal. What is growing faster than you would think, and uh, Steve Kalilea of World Peace Index will tell us exactly how on Friday, what's growing fast, but you can't see it yet, you can't measure it yet, is the way that people are learning to communicate, they're developing their inner resources, they're sitting in um, quietness with other people, they're learning from the sages of, of, of thousands of years ago, how to contain their mm. strong emotions. Now, I can't measure that and tell you that's going to prevail. All I can tell you is that it's spreading very fast. So, so how would you, in that worldview, how do you feel about things like the big civil rights demonstrations over, over the last 18 months, which, which have definitely punctured the consciousness, sometimes because they're peaceful, but, but other times they're not. And so I suppose, what's your learning from that, your, your thoughts about the long-term consequences of, of what is going on at the moment? Well, I think, I think it's a fantastic waking up, because we didn't know until um, the Black Lives Matter movement and the murder of George Floyd, his, his anniversary of his death is today, I think. We didn't really know what was happening between the police and the black communities in America. But that has all now come to the surface mm. in some violent ways, but incredibly to the consciousness of the whole world. And it's made parts of America very ashamed of where they've got to, that they do have this kind of it, that this kind of inherent violence by the police has been allowed and tolerated. And that's changing now. The, the thing that I, I took out of your, your lockdown list was a, a very emotive line about Nelson Mandela and his relationship with violence, w which had taken him into prison, but something that didn't take him out. You used a lovely phrase about him and, and his energy. I, I don't want to steal your line, so tell us a little bit about, about why that meant so much to you and what, what was the, the spine-tingling um, well, experience. I, I was lucky enough to, to work with Richard Branson and um, uh, various other world leaders to build something called The Elders, because it was felt that the world is now a global village and it needs wiser global elders to help make better decisions. And that involved bringing in Nelson Mandela as the founder of this, the elders. And so we had the incredible privilege of meeting with him. He walked into a room leading heavily on Peter Gabriel's arm. It was Peter Gabriel's original idea and came into a room about 60 people. And I was sitting about, I don't know, 20, 20 feet away from him. And he started to speak and I got goosebumps. And he has a raspy voice. He's not an orator. He doesn't do oratorical flourishes. He doesn't insist on anything. At the end of 25 minutes, I still had goosebumps. Mm. And I thought, what is this? What's going on? I've never had goosebumps for more than a minute before. 25 minutes of goosebumps. And eventually I realized it was the energy of that man's integrity. You could not push him around. He was so strong in his experience 
27 years in jail, which had left him with the compassion for his jailers even, but even so for the South African government, one of the most violent ever in the world, and I lived there for 10 years, to the extent that he could calm his colleagues when he was freed from jail and get into negotiation with that government instead of a civil war. Everybody thought there'd be a civil war when he came out. Mm. Everybody was offering them guns. So they could have easily fought it out and there would have been maybe six million dead, but they didn't. They chose to take the compassionate, which is the hardest route, the compassionate route, see the potential in their violent government and build a new South Africa on the basis of that. And okay, there's been a lot of problems since, but they didn't have a civil war. Mm. And I, I think nobody could disagree with with exactly what you say was that they're kind of like you know sometimes when you see that aura of integrity it's sometimes hard to put your finger on well what is it that that defines it but it's so it's so there to be recognized so thank you very much i must say you have great integrity also thank you so much for joining me on change makers that's all we have time for for this episode thank you very much bye Changemakers is brought to you by the campaigns firm seven hills and presented by me michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?